Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Now it's time for something completely different. Fortress America is crumbling, thanks in part at least to Donald Trump. For that, we turn to Alfred McCoy. He's the J.R.W. Smale Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the author most recently of the book In the Shadows of the American Century, The Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power. He's also a regular contributor to The Nation and to Tom Dispatch. Al McCoy, welcome back. Thank you, John. The decline of American global power that you've been writing about lately didn't begin on January 20th, 2017, when Trump took the oath of office. There were already signs of it before that day. Let's talk about what happened before Trump. Well, first of all, the United States had probably about half of the world economy at the end of World War II. By 1960, we were down to 40% of the world economy. Recently, depending on how you measure it, it's around 20%. And if you take the more objective index of, of purchasing power parity, in other words, how much is a, a, a dollar buy you in China versus how much it buys in the United States, we have about 15% of the global economy. And as our, our share of the global economy has declined, so has our, our raw international power. And so the U.S. influence in the world was fading uh, quite markedly, <clears throat> even before Trump was taking power. So therefore, uh, if you will, the U.S. international leadership is no longer a given based upon, if you will, the undeniable fact of American economic and military supremacy. As American power fades, leadership becomes ever more paramount, ever more important into maximizing the remaining U.S. power on the international stage. And that's why leadership has proved so important in the last 10, 15 years in U.S. political history. Of course, it's China whose power is uh, looming uh, over the United States right now. In At Tom Dispatch and in The Nation, you write about a new Silk Road under construction. I didn't know about this. I, I get ads inviting me on guided tours of the Silk Road, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, and Kazakhstan. They say it's exotic and ancient and that visiting there is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. What, what's the new Silk Road you're talking about? Initially, when China joined the World Trade Organization in 2002, everybody thought that China was going to join the international community on our terms. They would make nice, we just buy them into the system, and they will accept the system as it is, and they will, but they will, they will play well in groups, okay? And <clears throat> China, once it got its footing internationally, began to do otherwise. China devised a, a, a sophisticated two-part strategy for demolishing U.S. global power. Uh, the one thing I think you have to understand is that 
beneath that massive economic and military apparatus that the United States built for the exercise of global dominion after World War II, it rested on on very strong geopolitical foundations. As the historian at Oxford, John Darwin, has written, the United States was the first power in 600 years to control the axial ends of Eurasia. It was the first power to actually dominate the whole of the Eurasian continent from our NATO alliance in Western Europe and through four bilateral trade pacts running from Japan through South Korea, the Philippines, all the way down to Australia. And then between these two axial points, we laid down, if you will, circles of steel, uh, multilateral military packs, three great fleets, the, the, uh, <clears throat> the sixth fleet in the Mediterranean, the fifth fleet in the Persian Gulf, and the seventh fleet in the Pacific, hundreds of military bases, and in the last 10 years we've built 60 drone bases stretching from Sicily to Guam in the Pacific. And China had the idea that they could break the U.S. dominion over the Eurasian landmass through a two-part strategy. One, they began building in the last couple of years seven bases in the South China Sea. They spent $200 billion to build a modern port, transforming the sleepy fishing village of Guador into a, a, a modern port on the Arabian Sea. They just opened last year a port uh, in a facility in Djibouti at the other end of the Arabian Sea. But more fundamentally, China made about $4 trillion from the time they entered the World Trade Organization in 2002. And they spent more or less about a trillion dollars laying down this massive infrastructure of rails, gas pipelines, oil pipelines, to transform Europe and Asia from two continents, which is anomalous because it's the only continent on the planet in which a unitary landmass is divided into two continents, and that's because of the, the empties thousands of miles at the center of Eurasia. Well, China's laying down this massive trillion-dollar infrastructure that's going to stretch from the Atlantic to the Pacific, and that will unify Eurasia. Moreover, they've, they've invested another trillion dollars uh, by 2025, investing in Africa, inning that, integrating to that, and they will be forming Europe, Africa, and Asia into a unitary market, a unitary landmass, the center of the world economy and the center of geopolitical power. That's their grand vision. Now we get to Donald Trump. Of course, he ran for office saying he would get a better deal from China. How's that working out? Uh, Trump, almost as if by some malign design, uh, seems to be setting out to to damage, uh, if not destroy, this this architecture of U.S. geopolitical power. Uh, last year, Trump made two major international trips, and he made two trips. Okay, his first trip in May, he went to Europe. He visited NATO headquarters. He attacked our NATO allies for failing to pay their fair share of of defense expenses, but more fundamentally, when he was at NATO headquarters, he refused to affirm the uh, the, the principle of common defense, i.e. one NATO member is attacked, NATO defends that member. Without the principle of common defense, NATO isn't NATO. Trump refused to defend that principle. Uh, he's since you know, said, oh, yes, of course, you know, the White House said, yes, we, we mean it, but 
that 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 refusal to make that statement in, uh, when he was in visiting NATO headquarters in, in Brussels just sent shockwaves throughout Europe. Suddenly, Europe was aware, as as Angela Merkel said in the aftermath of Trump's visit, that Germany and Europe must chart their own destiny. And then in November, he visited Asia. He made his grand 12-day tour of Asia, and uh, <clears throat> he behaved very nicely and politely until he came to the Asia-Pacific Economic uh, uh, Cooperation meeting in Vietnam at the end of his tour, and he, he started attacking multilateral trade pacts. Um, and everybody was aware that when Trump came into office, he canceled something called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a pact of 12 nations that was designed by President Obama to redirect 40% of world trade away from China across the Pacific towards the United States. And uh, Trump canceled that pact in his first week in office, he now attacked the whole, at, at that Vietnam meeting. He attacked the whole idea of multilateral trade pacts, and in a kind of rejoinder to Trump, the other eleven members of the Trans-Pacific Pact announced at that same meeting that they were reviving the pact, that they were making steps to move forward without the United States. China also appeared at uh, at that Vietnam meeting. Uh, Xi Jinping gave a fulsome. Uh, speech embracing international trade, and China is pushing its own 16-nation regional cooperation trade pact to pull all that trade away from the United States and towards China. So in effect, <clears throat> Trump has damaged, if you will, the two key pillars of U.S. geopolitical power, kind of hammer blows against them, damaging NATO and Western Europe and damaging those multilateral relations with the Asia-Pacific powers. The other thing that Trump set out to do was to enlist Chinese help in setting limits on North Korean threats to the United States. How's that worked out? Um, China, I think, has played a very sophisticated and long-term strategic hand uh, they, 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 if you will, you signaled to Trump and have indicated to Trump that they're going to cooperate. The Washington or, or Trump strategy is kind of a triangulation strategy. Okay, in other words, we shove Beijing, we, 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 we nudge Beijing, and then Beijing pushes Pyongyang, and Pyongyang, North Korea, stops its missile tests and moves towards disarmament. That's the whole theory. And so <clears throat> this puts China in a, in a, if you will, in a, in a superb bargaining position. So they make these gestures towards getting uh, uh, North Korea to, to stop their nuclear tests. They send emissaries. They, they, pour, they cooperate with the sanctions. On the other hand, China is playing a much longer-term diplomatic hand, which has two parts. First of all, pushing the U.S. military out of South Korea, driving a wedge between uh, South Korea and the United States, uh, getting the U.S. military off the Korean Peninsula long-term, short-term, <clears throat> ending the joint U.S.-Korean uh, military operations. Also, China is playing upon this to stop U.S. economic pressures on China. The Trump promised he was going to equalize trade and all that. And also, very importantly, getting the United States to back away from defending freedom of navigation 
in the South China Sea. Uh, China has built seven bases, transforming through dredging atolls in the South China Sea and the Spratly Islands into military bases. Uh, in 2016, the, the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague ruled against China, said that those atolls gave China no claim to territory. Well, China has actually got something called the Nine-Dash Line. China isn't just claiming claim to those bases. China claims that the South China Sea, this international waterway that's the home to $5 trillion in world trade, that, that that's Chinese sovereign territory. That's their claim. They're claiming claim to an ocean uh, as sovereign territory. The United States under President Obama challenged China by very aggressive freedom of navigation patrols. And under Trump, there have been no major freedom of navigation patrols for the past six months. In effect, we've ceded the South China Sea to China. So, yeah, so, so in other words, China has played a long, clever diplomatic hand <clears throat> while Washington, under Trump, has been focused obsessively and narrowly on the North Korea issue. And China's winning. Last question. I think a lot of our friends on the American left would initially be happy at the idea that America's imperial power was waning. But would a world under Chinese hegemony be better for the United States or for the rest of the world? Yeah. Remember I talked to, when we started this interview about that delicate duality of U.S. power? On the one hand, a world of sovereign states uh, enshrined in the United Nations, governed by the rule of law, that advocates human rights, uh, international trade, uh, shared progress and prosperity, okay, along with the, the raw U.S. military and economic power, the grim reality of U.S. hegemony, okay? <clears throat> so when people talk about U.S. decline and people on the left, you know, think that maybe that's not a bad thing. What they're thinking about is the grim side of the equation, the U.S. military bases, the nuclear force, the U.S. special forces operating as they are now in about 75% of the nations around the world, all that, okay? What, what they don't realize is that, as, if that if that grim power fades too quickly, it's very likely that the more liberal aspect of that delicate duality, the U.N., the international rule of law, the commitment to human rights, woman rights, to shared peace and prosperity, that that too will decline. Because China, as Edward Wong said in his review, uh, he's the former New York Times correspondent, did a review of China's rise to geopolitical power, and it said that basically what China is, is, is standing for right now is blackmail, bribery, and raw realpolitik pressure that undercuts this more liberal side of that delicate duality. So if the U.S. declines too quickly, too readily, creates a vacuum and China moves in on its own terms, it could be a, a less equitable world instead of a more equitable world. Alfred McCoy, he wrote about the crumbling of Fortress America for the nation in Tom Dispatch. Thank you, Al. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com 
And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.